This uh, discourse that I have chosen is called No Food for the Hindrances. We know that we have the five hindrances, at least I hope we know, and this discourse talks very, in a very brief and succinct manner about the things that one should do so that the hindrances are not supported, that the hindrances do not have more food given to them, more nutriment, one could say. And if they don't get too much nutriment, then it's easier to let go of them, to combat them, to eventually eliminate them. The first of the hindrances is sensual desire. And it says, what is no food for the arising of sensual desire which has not yet arisen, or for the growth of sensual desire if it has already arisen? And the answer is, there is the repulsive feature of things, systematic attention to that, if made much of, does not provide food for the arising of sensual desire, if not yet arisen, or for its growth, if already arisen. Well, desire, sensual desire, always arises for that which we consider attractive. The attractiveness which is either seen, heard, touched, tasted, smelled, or thought about. But here we're talking more about the five senses. So if we have attraction to something, obviously, then we want it. It's the underlying tendency which was in yesterday's discourse. The underlying tendency of lust and desire for that which appears to bring pleasant feelings. Now if we think of the opposite of that attraction, it will help us to get rid of desire. Now, whatever it is that we may desire, we can always think of the opposite of the attraction. For instance, we can always think of the fact that it is very, of very short duration, the satisfaction that we might get from it, the impermanence, that's the first thing. When it is, um, then it is the aging and the decaying that appears in everything. There's nothing that doesn't age and decay. For instance, if one thinks of food, well, that certainly decays in one's body and creates all sorts of um, further complications. Anything that one may want will eventually have the feature of having to be renewed 
because it becomes used up. So whatever it is, we are always in the position where we can think of something which can counteract our attraction. That does not mean, under any circumstances, that we should feel a repulsion for it. What it means is that the attraction has to be counteracted with the repulsiveness so that we stay in the middle. It's always the middle path. Now, if it's a person where there's sensual lust arising, it's a good idea to take oneself apart into the 32 parts of the body, not the other person, but oneself, and recognize the fact that everybody looks like that, that there's nothing special about another person. And also one can look at, not only at that, but one can look at the difficulties that one has with oneself and therefore the difficulties that the other person undoubtedly has with him or herself. I'm sure everybody can think of such things. However, our problem does not lie in the fact that we can't think of anything like that. The problem lies that we don't want to. Anybody can do it. Because sensual desire promises something. It promises the gratification of it and therefore happiness. That it doesn't fulfill that promise, that is, of course, a second matter and that's something that we continually experience. But we also like to fool ourselves that we experience it because we haven't attacked the matter in the cleverest way that there must be some better way of doing it. Or that we didn't get exactly what we should have got. If we had got exactly, we would have been all right. And that next time around, we'd first of all be much cleverer, we'd know better how to do it, we'd get a much better result from our desire and then everything be fine. So we are constantly trying to cover up reality. And hardly anybody is willing, other than long-time meditators, to look at reality. Long-time meditators are forced to. If they want to be long-time meditators. Because if one doesn't want to look at reality, one's going to stop meditating. If one wants to be a long-time meditator, one's got to do it. One is forced to do it. That's what it's all about, to look at the reality. So what is the reality? The reality is not that the our essential desire will eventually bring us happiness. It is the opposite. Our essential desire brings us dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Why does it bring unsatisfactoriness? Because the desire in itself is already unsatisfactory. We wouldn't have any desire if we were totally satisfied. So we are already dissatisfied, and that's why the desire is there. 
So the two are completely bound up with each other. And our idea that the promise of the gratification brings happiness is exactly what the Buddha says, that we're looking at everything upside down. What we think is dukkha is sukkha, and what we think is sukkha is dukkha. We've got it completely wrong. The desire itself is already dukkha, it's already unsatisfactory, because it means that we're not totally contented. And then the, the reaching out for that what we want, and wanting it, is of course also attention that what we are reaching for uh, creates tension so there's no peacefulness or harmony in that but we only look at the fact that when we get what we want we have that one moment where we are gratified I got what I wanted and that is one moment of gratification because it is a very strong ego, ego support. I finally got what I wanted. But the next mind moment, it's already gone. Because not only is that I got what I wanted already gone, the I have what I wanted is no longer interesting. Because there's no wanting anymore. It's already there. It's already in existence. So the wanting is gone. So the gratification of the desire has one mind moment where there is a gratification and the rest is all dukkha. Most people never get to looking at it that way. We do have the understanding that so far the gratifications of our desires have not given us complete satisfaction. Most people know that but most people don't get stopped uh, from that not to continue that way most people have no idea that if one were to stop that one would have far less dissatisfaction dropping the desire means dropping the dissatisfaction it doesn't mean becoming self Satisfied, it means looking at things the way they are and, and recognizing them for what they are, just as they are. The dropping desire is our only way of gratification and not having desire. So again and again we can see that from quite a logical standpoint we are catching it at the tail end. And if we, we continue to do that, we never get to that what we're all really looking for, and that is complete satisfaction. So the Buddha here <coughs> recommends that when sense of desire arises, to look at the unattractiveness of that what we're desiring, and not just see its attractive part. And when we do that, then we may not even have the desire but if we have it already we are preventing it from growing it to the point of becoming a passion it doesn't mean that we can't have preferences 
But a preference is not a desire. A preference is a choice. So if there are two things or three things or five things to choose from, there's no reason why one can't have a preference. That's often, or very often, totally misunderstood. One of the things which is lacking is so often is common sense. Of course one can have a preference. But that the desiring of that which one hasn't got, that is the cause for dukkha. Uh, yes, please. Thank you. Now, this, the second hindrance is ill will. Here it's called malevolence, but I think I prefer ill will. Malevolence is a bit of an uh, ancient word. And what is no food for the arising of ill will, not yet arisen, or for is the growth of it, if already arisen? It is a heart released by goodwill. Now the heart released by goodwill, they put the Pali here, that's why I know what the Pali is. Metta Chetu Vimutti. Now Metta, you all know, is loving kindness. But Chetu Vimutti is actually liberation. Vimutti means liberation. And it's the liberation of the heart, which means actually enlightenment. So that's really going one step, uh, or maybe several steps further than the, um, the present situation. So what we're looking at is here that no food at all for ill will is, of course, the heart which has completely been liberated through loving kindness. But other than a complete liberation of the heart, we can say we can see at the, the rest of the instruction systematic attention. Systematic. It's very very important word. The Buddha's teaching is systematic. It's not left to um, having good luck or to sometimes happening or if one just happens to think of it it is a systematic training of heart and mind step by step now heart and mind in every person has exactly the same ability but everybody has certain triggers that help them and they should be used. Everybody has certain abilities and skills which should be used in order to make this purification and growth, spiritual growth happen. The pathway of the growth is identical for everybody. The triggers and the skills which we bring to that pathway are different. The length of time we need is different depending upon our past in this life and past lives, particularly in this life, what we've been doing with ourselves, but very much so also what, where this mind has come from. So systematic, it's a system. The Buddhist teaching is a system. It's a system of, one could actually say, a system of checks and balances 
Remember that from your school days? A system of checks and balances was the system that the British Empire was using in order to keep their, um, their own supremacy going. The checks and balances is exactly what we could say about the Buddha's teaching because the balance always has to be kept where we're always staying in the middle. We don't get infatuated with this body, but we don't have the um, revulsion for it, which would mean that we want to get rid rid of it. We don't have this great desire for sensual gratification and see the unattractiveness at the same time but we don't get repulsed, always in the middle, the balance part. And we check ourselves against all these uh, instructions, whether we're actually following them. This is one of the very important things, to check oneself whether one is in balance. Most people are totally out of balance because either they are emotionally uh, stunted or they're emotionally overwrought. It's very seldom that somebody is in balance. And this teaching called the middle way is always going towards that, towards this balancing. So it's a systematic attention, a systematic training. There's a system. And this system needs to be known and practiced. And the system that we have in meditation is equally systematic. Now we use for our meditation practice all the abilities we have, natural abilities which we have brought to this meditation practice, and we use different triggers, but it's a systematic step-by-step realization. The same is for insights, a systematic step-by-step realization. There is no deviation in anybody's mind on that. It's just a matter of time. That's all. We're all of the same mind. Even though that may seem strange, there is no difference in our potential, in our difficulties. It's a matter of quantity, usually, as far as the the difficulties are concerned. The potential is equal for everybody. So if the systematic attention to that, to the heart released by goodwill, is given, made much of, there's no food for the arising of ill will if it's not yet arisen, and there's no food for its growth if it's already arisen. Now, because of that, we do loving-kindness meditation, loving-kindness meditation, which is systematic attention. And very often people think that they can only do loving-kindness meditation when they feel very loving. Well, that's exactly the wrong way around. Because when they already feel very loving, they don't have to do it anymore. They already do, have already got the result. It's the time to do it is when one doesn't feel loving at all. In order to change one's mind and get back to the balance in the middle, at least, where the mind is no longer hateful, <clears throat> no longer resisting and rejecting, but where the mind at least comes to the middle again. So the um, 
the system of loving-kindness meditation is one of the directives in order to get the mind going in a certain direction which is helpful for goodwill, opposite of ill-will or here the word metta is not translated as loving-kindness which isn't such a wonderful translation anyway it's translated as goodwill which is uh, not a bad translation at all I usually just use love make it simple and and, uh, everybody knows what is meant but goodwill is alright too now the systematic attention as I said before is checks and balances so we need to check ourselves check ourselves against these uh, or check ourselves for these hindrances whether there is ill will which can be in the form of rejection, resistance, dislike in a form of um, irritation form of um, having a, a, a feeling which is usually accompanied uh, the um, ill will in any form is usually accompanied by a feeling of the mind going downhill now it may not necessarily be a downward motion but it is always an an inner feeling of going in a direction which is not conducive to happiness there's no question about it that anything that has this negativity in it of any sort is always uh, contains a feeling which creates unhappiness so that needs to be checked in oneself whether one feels that the ill will is justified or whether one feels one just doesn't feel up to changing it to good will it doesn't really matter one needs to know one needs to know what the mind is doing and if, if one knows and pays this systematic attention to it which means continually not only when it becomes really upsetting uh, most people do pay attention when it becomes upsetting because they're so upset they can't help but pay attention uh, other that they might go to a movie and try to get rid of the upset that's also possible distraction but usually one has to pay attention when one's really upset but that's a bit late because what is being said here is that one doesn't give it any food so that it doesn't even arise but if it has already arisen so that it doesn't grow so having become upset by it already it's a bit late it has already grown so the ideal way of dealing with these hindrances is to stop them before they arise now this is something that we uh, usually don't uh, see in the suttas about the hindrances and there are dozens and dozens of them about the hindrances we don't usually see that what is being said is that these hindrances are there and then what to do with them so that one gets rid of them again but here the emphasis is on the fact to do something before they arise now obviously that makes one much happier and that's what everybody wants because the uh, the um, 
lack of harmony that all these hindrances bring about is not even experienced. The heart and mind stay in balance if we prevent the hindrances from arising. And to prevent them from arising is not to feed them. That takes effort. Our natural inclination is to feed them. Also because intellectually we have have misunderstood what it's all about. But not only intellectually we have misunderstood because that is the easiest to remedy. Doesn't always work either. But it's the easiest to remedy is the intellectual misunderstanding. But the feeling misunderstanding, that's not easy to remedy. That takes, takes some doing. So here we are concerned with not having this, these things arise. And in the way, uh, in the um, aspect of sensual desire, it's to see the opposite of the attractiveness. And in the way of ill will, is to practice goodwill. Now, practicing goodwill as much of the time as is humanly possible. Now, that means that one keeps oneself in check. One is on top of it. One doesn't get under it. As one gets under one's emotions, one's lost. If one's on top of it, that means one sees one's emotions and one recognizes those that are not profitable, unwholesome, not skillful, unpleasant, whatever word you like to use, and does something immediately before they take hold. Now, if one practices goodwill continually, and it is a practice, then this, the opposite, the ill will, doesn't have a chance to rise. You can't have both things at the same time. It's as simple as that. You either practice one or the other. Now, there are people in the world who are actually practicing ill will. In fact, it is my personal guess that there are more people in the world that are practicing ill will than those that are practicing good will. And ordinary people who are not particularly uh, inclined one way or another are practicing both uh, usually to the detriment of the good it's very strange isn't it strange phenomena why don't we just practice the one that feels much better I mean, the only thing that makes any sense isn't it if we use a bit of common sense wouldn't we know immediately that practicing goodwill is so much <coughs> more pleasant for ourselves Never mind other people, pleasant for them too, but it's so much more pleasant for us. And yet, most people practice ill will with a vengeance. And then, if one has practiced it long enough, ill will, and well enough, it's very difficult to get out of. If we practice ill will well, it becomes a very unpleasant habit. By the same token, the systematic attention to goodwill, practicing it well, practicing it constantly, makes it a very useful habit. 
It doesn't mean to be non-discriminating. If it would ever mean that, it would result in stupidity. And that's not what the Buddha taught. It just means recognizing that our heart can speak positively for ourselves and others. It can have warmth and care and concern in whichever way it shows up, it shows itself. And what is no food for the arriving of sloth and torpor that has not yet arisen or for the growth of them if they have already arisen? Now, sloth is in the body, torpor is in the mind. You can call it laziness and drowsiness. And the mental torpor creates the physical sloth. They are both intertwined and one could say that also the physical sloth can create mental torpor. That's why it is not recommended if one wants to meditate properly to do it lying on one's bed unless one wants to fall asleep anyway. It does create a mental state which is not totally alert and awake and aware. That's why it is important to sit in a sort of a, any sort of disciplined way. But it's much worse the other way around. While the slothful body habits do create torpor in the mind, the other way around is much worse. Because the mind that is um, bent on sensual gratification is a mind that does not wish to in investigate and interrogate itself and really find out. It's a mind that wants to what appears to be the line of least resistance. It isn't really, but it appears to be. And that is then a mind, of course, that does have the um, drowsiness in it and doesn't really want to see. It seems to be that this kind of mind state is created because of the rejection or resistance to knowing oneself. It is not a natural uh, thing that happens to some people and doesn't happen to others. We can all fall into that state and we can all get out of it. So the um, element of putting forth effort, element of exertion, element of striving, systematic attention to those when made much of, provide no food for the arising of sloth and torpor not yet arisen, or for the growth of them if already arisen. Effort, exertion, striving. Sometimes people think that that's exactly what they don't want to do, because that's what people do in the world. But it's exactly the opposite. In the world, 
people put forth effort, exert themselves and strive in order to get more of whatever it is they want more. May it be money or fame or um, interesting things or knowledge, whatever it is they want, they want to get more of. On the spiritual path, it is an effort, an exertion and a striving to get rid of everything that hangs around us. The effort to let go. To let go of all our ideas and viewpoints, of all our convolutions in the mind, of our desires for sensual gratification and the desire for the ego support system. Now that effort is indispensable. It's impossible to have this pathway function without effort. And the Buddha calls it right effort. Sama Vayama. Right effort. And right effort is just that. The letting go, the getting rid of. And right effort are also what are called the four padanas, the four supreme efforts which concern our mind states to get rid of, to let go of any unwholesomeness and to cultivate and develop the wholesome state. Now that's also right effort. So the right effort and the right exertion and the right kind of striving, although they are the same words, are not the same elements as in the world. And this is the, a factor which arises again and again that the language which we use, and this was mentioned in one of the discourses which we had, uh, I think last week, that the language has to remain the same and the meaning is different. And that the Buddha himself had to use this worldly, everyday language without mis apprehension without mean without the meaning that the world puts to it but with the spiritual meaning the very famous monk Buddha Dasa calls it the two kinds of language so we have to make effort we have to exert ourselves we have to strive it doesn't come like grace from heaven that is not part of the Buddha's teaching. Grace from heaven is a hope and a prayer which doesn't work out. It's our own grace that we bring to bear. Our own purification. Now the next one, the next hindrance, is here translated as excitement and flurry, usually translated as restlessness and worry. It doesn't matter what it is. It's um, one of the same thing. Udacha kukuchai, 
and Pali, conscious life is pregnant and curiosity, And what is no food for the arising of excitement, of restlessness and worry that has not yet arisen, or for the growth of them if they have already arisen? It is tranquility of mind. Systematic attention to, the, to that, made much of, provides then no food for the arising of excitement, restlessness and worry that have not yet arisen, or for their growth if they have already arisen. Now, tranquility of mind is obviously a meditation state. Because you say to somebody, well, don't be excited, why don't you have tranquility of mind is futile. I mean, if somebody's excited, he can't be tranquil. All of these states, and I'll mention that in a moment, have their counterparts in the meditation. And therefore, systematic attention, step by step, knowing exactly what one is doing, so that as one knows it and as one does it, it has a systematic result. If we don't have the understanding of our experiences, we don't have the benefit of them. We have to have the understood experience. If we don't have that, the benefit of the experience is not repeatable and therefore, eventually, it will dissipate again. So tranquility of mind as an antidote for restlessness and worry, it can be construed to mean that it is the third jhana, the third meditative absorption, although it isn't particularly and expressively stated as such. It can only be that because there is no tranquility of mind unless the mind has become absorbed in tranquility. We can have non-worried mind at times if we haven't just thought of something that we like to worry about. Most people can bring up things to worry about at the drop of a hat. It doesn't take them long at all to find something new to worry about. They finish the old one till they find the next one. I mean, it's, it's nothing but um, the way the mind can operate. But if there is the absorption into tranquility, at the time this is happening, obviously there can be no worry or restlessness or excitement. But it has a residual effect, like all the absorption states have residual effects. They change one's inner being. And that change is exactly that which comes about so that eventually the arising of the hindrances is far less often and of far less strength until one day they can be uprooted. So it is a step-by-step progression of more and more absorption and less and less hindrances. As far as our hindrance of sloth and torpor is concerned, which needs the effort and the uh, 
expression and striving, that one has the antidote in the meditation just to the very first instance of sitting down and putting one's mind on the meditation subject so that one has this striving to let go of everything else except the meditation subject. Now the ill will is effectively counteracted in the very first of the absorptions, the delightful sensation at that time that's impossible to have ill will because when there's delight there can be no ill will but it also has the residual effect of knowing that the mind can at any time it wants to get into that state and therefore it feels far more secure far more at ease and doesn't have to react to everything that it becomes obsessed by or becomes touched by. It doesn't need to react all the time. It doesn't uproot the ill will, but it certainly oils the wheels so that the ill will is no longer uh, such a problem. The more systematically we practice, and get into the first absorption the, uh, where the delightful feeling arises, sensation arises, the more often we do that, if it's made much of, the less the ill will will arise. In everyday life, there are many, many occasions when it can arise, but it will be kept in check because the mind is far more balanced. An unbalanced mind falls from one unpleasant emotional state to another. It falls from the state of dislike and hate and worry and fear into the one of attachment and passion and then back again and forward again and backward again and forward again. The uh, balanced, the trained mind has other possibilities, particularly the absorption. The uh, sensual desire is in the meditation counteracted with um, our one-pointedness. Now, there is no meditation without one-pointedness. And one-pointedness, even if it's only momentary, is the most effective antidote that we can have because it's automatic. We don't have to start thinking of repulsiveness. Now, as we had in the last discourse, the one that Damadina was answering, Visaka, it was already mentioned that the unpleasant feelings which arise have no hold on us in the meditative absorption and they need not be counteracted or nor do the pleasant feelings need to be counteracted because there is nothing that is there except our concentration so when we are concentrated one pointed the uh, sensual desire doesn't have any hold on us 
So the more we can, the more often we can systematically bring that to bear upon our inner being, the easier it becomes to purify. And the last hindrance. And what is no food for doubt and wavering? I like that very much, that translation. I like that better than skeptical doubt. Because people don't even know for exactly what skeptical doubt is. Doubt and wavering, it sounds good to me as a good translation. In Pali it's called Vichikicha. So one has any choice what one wants to translate, doubt and wavering. The food for without and wavering which has not yet arisen, or for the growth of it if it has already arisen. Now there are things which are good and those are bad, blameworthy and not, mean and exalted, things that are part of darkness or light. Systematic attention to that is made much of, is no food for the rising of doubt and wavering, not yet arisen, or for the growth of them, if already arisen. Now what does the Buddha mean by that? It's quite an interesting statement. These are different uh, antidotes for the five hindrances than are mostly common. There are others which are commonly used, but these are different. So we can see from that that we have options what to do. Now this one here means that we don't have to believe or disbelieve we should find out what's good and what's bad for us, for others, in ourselves. What's mean? What's exalted? What's blameworthy and what isn't? What is part of being dark inside or light inside? which means introspection. Introspection and inner investigation and recognizing that which is not conducive to our happiness, to our peacefulness, to our harmony and recognizing then that the Buddha has given exact instructions how to get rid of those things and how to substitute those that are profitable and using those exact instructions step by step and not trying to figure it out by oneself but just to recognize the difficulties within seeing them clearly and then using the antidote so when one does that, when one sees that, that the Buddha has given exact instructions how to get rid of that which is difficulty, which are difficulties within, then there's no doubt, no wavering, because it's a personal experience. And when it is a personal experience, what can one doubt? One knows what's going on within. Sometimes one has an experience first. 
and then find out from the Buddha what it is. That's usually a great joy that at least there is an explanation for experiences which one thought were unique. No one, none of, none of us are unique. Nothing special. Just human beings with all the necessary qualifications and difficulties. That's all. Everybody exactly alike. Takes a bit of one's ego pride away, but makes life much easier. Nobody different. Everything the same. And when one realizes one hasn't got a monopoly on anything, neither on dukkha, on unsatisfactoriness, nor does one have a monopoly on certain experiences, one can relax. And one can see that this exists, the good, the bad, the blameworthy, the praiseworthy, that which is mean and which is exalted, all of that exists. And the Buddha has made reference to all of these things at one time or another and given exact instructions what to do about it, just as he does here with the hindrances. And then one doesn't waver in one's practice. Now the wavering in practice, now I do this, now I do that, now I see it, now I don't, which is it's the most damaging way of practicing. Practice has to be consistent. Consistent, dedicated, wholehearted, giving oneself it need not, need not have uh, enormous uh, uh, jumps from one ninth state to another. As long as it keeps going, it gets there. When one keeps on cleaning the house, eventually it's going to be clean. Step after step, without wavering, without trying to find something easier, something better, something different, something more interesting, something more exalted, whatever it is that one's looking for, there is no such thing. Seeing within oneself what needs to be done and then setting about it and doing it. Systematically. Now there's two things which are necessary <coughs> in order to practice properly. I've often mentioned them, I'll mention them again. We all have heart and mind. We all have logical thinking and feeling. Both have to be engaged. We have to fully understand what is being taught, why it's being taught, and how to do it. What, why, and how. And then we've got to love it. If we don't have that whole implement of our complete ability involved, it's going to be a very half-hearted endeavor. The system which the Buddha taught is unsurpassed. It has everything in it for heart and mind. Of course, most people don't know all of it, but even some of it has already enough 
practice to become free. So the last one, this skeptical doubt, is counteracted automatically in the meditation through the second step in the meditation, which is the um, sustained application to the meditation subject. Because one sees now that the mind can do it. It has that as a counteraction. But seeing oneself clearly is also an antidote. Now these are totally different antidotes as usually mentioned. The, um, the others are in, in a different uh, context. But these are also very important because, and I'll repeat that, they make reference to the fact that we are able to prevent the hindrances from arising and not just try to get rid of them after they've arisen. It is much easier to prevent them. And life is far more pleasant. That's the end of this little discourse. If you have any questions, this is the time to ask them. Uh, why is one-pointedness always mentioned uh, as antidote for the sensual desire? It is also, I think, also antidote for all the other four hindrances. That's true. It is. But the uh, beginning sentence for the meditative absorptions is always secluded from sensual desire. Sensual desire is the strongest. So the strongest hindrance to meditation. It's the worst one. So secluded from sensual desire, always the first sentence for the jhanas. So only when we are secluded from sensual desire for the time of the meditation are we able to have any kind of Meditation and meditation always means one point of view. So that's why these two are always put together. Sure, it takes away the rest too, but it's got to take that one away. What else? And here. and worry for thoughts and is it, is it also mindfulness not only the third absorption well here in this particular sutta only tranquility of mind is mentioned but mindfulness certainly because mindfulness also is conducive to tranquility of mind because when you are mindful you can't get excited and it's impossible but uh, mindfulness certainly is um, a very strong antidote particularly of for future and past happenings because they, uh, you're in the present you're right here now and the worry is about uh, well it's probably about past or future and restlessness also so it's always about not this moment yes of course very very important also anything else
this is a time to talk. I feel the desire is really there's also just wanting to be comfortable, right? You know, when you when you talk about in this context of the queer consensual desire, you know, that's what I notice in myself. I just want to be comfortable. Physically? Yeah. yeah. The essential desire for physical comfort. It's for all that. That's lost That's top in the mind, not wanting to deal with it. That's top in the mind. I just don't want to know about it. It's okay, but I don't want to know about it. We, we, humanity has that very much. Because a lot of that, what we don't want to know about, is dukkha producing. And we don't really want to know about it. But physical comfort is sensual desire. Mm-hmm. You can have both at the same time. Eh? Well, you can have both hindrances at the same time. Yeah, of course, you can have all five. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they'll all arise one after another, but they can all stay then together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 Companions. It's not so much that there's something wrong with having them. There's something wrong with not recognizing them. That's what's wrong. Having them is a totally normal human behavior that we eventually would like to rise above normal human behavior. It's clear. All spiritual paths lead one to transcend normal human behavior. But as we are still on that level, it's quite normal to have them. But it is absurd not to know them. And this is what humanity usually does. We don't want to know about it. Or justify them when they're there. So it's a really that, that recognition which is very important. And once we have recognized how much havoc they play with us, then it will be a much greater incentive to practice their prevention. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
go inside of yourself and become aware of the feeling that is there now the emotion which exists in the center of your being get nearer and nearer to that center of purity center of calm and love penetrate right into that so that these feelings become your inner being purity, calm and love And from that pure center within you which is utterly calm where there's no wave motion at all reach out to the center of being here and there and everywhere sharing and offering your love to them from that pure center of your inner being where there's utter calm reach out to the whole of creation entering into that center 
sharing and offering your love. Think of any one person in particular who might benefit if you share and offer your love and reach out to the inner core of that person from your inmost core. and share and embrace and be together with that person. Think of those people with whom you would like to share the inmost core of your being. Let them surround you, be with you. Let the purity and calm and love of your heart be joined to theirs. Think of anyone where you can't recognize that inner core of purity, calm and love and reaching out from your inmost core, share and offer your love with that person. your heart 
core of your inner being grow to infinite proportions so that you can love and embrace everyone every being Now put your attention on yourself and be that purity and calm and love. Be only that, no room for anything else. become aware of the strength within that purity, calm and love provide use them as a foundation to rest upon be at ease and contented.
May beings everywhere be at ease and contented. <laughs>